to the 20th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the intersection of fashion technology and commerce. Joining me today is Giancarlo Paternoster, the founder of Giancarlo Studio Furniture, a workshop that is pushing wood to the absolute limit. For me, if you're not pushing the limit of what a material can do, you're not making art. Studio furniture, like couture in the fashion world, is the highest possible form of art. Pieces are made in small, if not entirely unique quantities, and are comprised of the best materials. Giancarlo and I grew up together, and he's ascended to the top of his craft in a remarkably short amount of time. As you will soon hear, he's driven to excel past any inherent limits to produce work that few others would dare to see through. This is the first furniture designer I've interviewed on the podcast, but there are striking similarities to the fashion and apparel space when it comes to talking about craft, process, and form. You can see Giancarlo's work in person at the International Contemporary Furniture Fair, May 21st to 24th at the Javits Center, New York City. Here's my talk with Giancarlo Paternoster. So tell me a bit about kind of your background. So I went to Scarsdale High School, and while I was there, I was part of the science research program. And I spent three years developing bicycles with a company called Morpheus Cycles down in the Bronx. I was kind of like the suspension analyst there. So what that means is I was in charge of, you know, figuring out where the trends of the bicycles were going, which at that time was more towards like downhill and freestyle bicycles to like the people that are in the know to that. And so that's what I was hired for. And I did that while I was in high school under this like guise of a science research project. And then after graduating, I was written up in like the local town newspaper and contacted by who now became a very good friend of mine. His name is Michael Josephs, and he works in the Bronx. He owns a giant shop. And he said, hey, kiddo, like, you want to come and work here? And I was like, awesome. He just had like a giant facility full of machine tools and like, I don't know, a lifetime's worth of work at all times going through the doors. And I kind of got along really great with the guys, learned a whole lot of stuff, loved my experience there. Then after high school, I went off to college at Lehigh University, which is in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and I studied mechanical engineering. And I started while I was there a little furniture business doing mostly custom furniture. So I did like smaller churches, synagogues, big jobs like that, you know, some private homes. And, you know, I've been in various galleries in Manhattan and Connecticut and kind of just like, you know, hustling as hard as I possibly could to sell furniture and then also be at like the cutting edge of whatever technology could possibly be incorporated into furniture, right? So constantly like developing new techniques to do things and, you know, always pushing the boundaries because obviously, you know, like as an engineer, that's kind of like the mindset that I approach everything with. And so talk a bit about kind of the transition from the bikes to the furniture. Like how did that happen and kind of why did that happen? To be honest with you, my science research teacher, Beth Schoenbrunn, who is so much name dropping. I know who's a gem. She's a gem. We were sitting there one day and I don't remember how we got talking about furniture, but she was like my mentor, right? So she would just make sure that everything was going well and just, you know, make sure that my bike project was on time and kind of help me in any capacity I ever needed. She was really wonderful. And she showed me the work of George Nakashima, who is a very famous woodworker from New Hope, Pennsylvania. And I think he died in 93 or 94, but her parents, 
I think is the story, bought a bunch of his pieces, I don't even know when, but they're gorgeous, and she was showing me pictures, and he's a master, and it just really got me thinking like, wow, these are the ways you can use wood. And then also at the time, it became pretty apparent to me that you can get orders for road bicycles all day long, but when you want to do mountain bikes, it's just such a different level of trust you have to have, and no one's looking to buy a mountain bike from a brand new brand made by a 18 to 19, 20-year-old in their parents' basement. Yeah, no one's looking to buy a lawsuit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No one's looking to buy a lawsuit. So I kind of just like wised up to that fact because I just realized that, you know what, this is probably something that I can't replicate with no money, no shop, and frankly, not enough experience in making a thousand of something. You know, I could make one of something really well, two, sure. But like to get a thousand to come out right is a whole different science on its own. So like I kind of just realized, you know what, hey, maybe furniture is something I can do that would allow me to like kind of exercise my creative juices. And then after I saw Nakashima's work and just like got into it, I was like, there's a lot of furniture out there that's just wrong. You know, which is like a kind of weird thing for somebody to say, but I see furniture all day long and whether it's made incorrectly or the form is wrong, it just really irks me. So I kind of just like, you know what, if I do anything, I'm going to make it right and it's going to be beautiful and, you know, show everybody up a little bit. Did the mechanical engineering background inform kind of how you approach this and were there things that you learned there that you've been able to kind of apply? Oh, 100% realistically, I'm not entirely sure how anybody designs furniture without, at some level, understanding core engineering principles, right? There's certain shapes that you see, like, and you see it all the time in modern furniture or even like, even better, contemporary furniture. You know, if you look at the people that are making furniture now, you really realize that they have no idea, you know, how to manipulate shapes in a way that allows them to really play with form in an interesting way. You know, having an engineering degree really helps in that, right? So I just launched now a dining table and a dining chair and then soon a chandelier. And for the chair, right, the chair is like probably the most designed object in the history of the world. If you want to make a new chair, you better have something to say and it better be good, right? You don't want to make a chair and have it be bad because then like you're kind of putting shame on a whole history of chairs. So it's kind of intimidating. But at the same time, the chair I designed and for anybody that, you know, takes a look at it, you'll realize that there's the perfect amount of material there, right? And it's perfectly engineered in a way that there's really no waste of material, right? So it's visually very light while being probably between three and four times stronger than my calculations than industry standards, which is interesting. And not really a goal I was, you know, really aiming for. I mean, I know what the standard is and I'm trying to like, you know, obviously I want to meet that. But, you know, the way it came out, I mean, it's just super strong and it's actually a funny thing the more load you apply to it, the stiffer it gets, which is kind of contrary to most chairs. You know, most chairs, like you apply whatever, 400 pounds down to the seat and the whole thing starts to- Such an American chair. (laughs) I actually had huge problems with that. The first book I bought on chair design, the dimensions were just all off. Like I followed the dimensions to a T and they were just like wrong. They're just not built for obese Americans. That's a huge part of it. But like, 
even like I'm a normal like 5'8 and maybe 160 pounds. Like I'm not a big guy and this chair felt small to me. Like it's just like a very small French cafe chair were just like the standards I was following because I didn't know better. So it really took me like really nine iterations over the course of just over two years-ish to get it right. Were you working on stuff while you were at school and kind of how did this all start to the kind of where the business exists today? You know what? That's a fuzzy answer. No one really knows when they started. I think the best pin I could put in it is the summer going into my sophomore year, I made a slab table, which they were hot at the time, right? You could make a slab table and spend whatever, $750 on the slabs and get some real money for them at market. The summer of slab tables. This is the summer of slab tables. So I did that that whole summer and kind of just stepped in some good luck for the first two or three months that kind of got me hooked. But the biggest problem was at a certain level, you can't sell tables without selling chairs, right? And nobody wants to make chairs because chairs are super difficult to make and they're hard to design. You know what? They're just hundreds of tiny little parts that nobody wants to futz with. You know, if you can take two slabs of wood and cobble them together and put them on top of like a generic looking base and make some money. Like that's what everybody's doing. But then you see now that the people that didn't evolve from that, they're gone. I mean, I haven't seen a new chair come out now, at least from New York in three years. Right. And before that, it was probably well over 10. But like in terms of like traditional design and like where design really counts, it's been a long time. So you started with this table. Yeah. So to get back to that story, started with the table and kind of, I walked the full, ready for this? I walked the full length of Manhattan, right? From really the Brooklyn Bridge to, I think like the low nineties. And I made a Google maps of all the galleries I wanted to hit. I don't remember how many galleries I hit, but like my rate of being talked to and accepted even into the gallery and my sweat through white button down shirt was probably 20%. And my rate of like, Talking to somebody for longer than 10 minutes was maybe five. And my rate of like actually making a sale was actually, it was probably around five, two. Anybody that talked to me for more than like 15 minutes, it was a pretty. They're just like, get this kid out of here. I'll buy it. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, it was interesting. And like, the other thing is I got into the market at a time where like it was going through a little bit of a transition, right? There were a lot of places that were closing, a lot of new places opening up. And, you know, it was just a weird time for design at the time. Not to say any net like now is any less weird. The contemporary is always weird. You spent all that time walking around and the only product to sell them was this table, right? Yeah, so I had one table and I had five by seven pictures of it printed out on, you know, CVS photo paper and walked around with my name and information sharpied on the back. And I got like, after that, maybe like three calls back and ended up placing a couple of pieces. Some got sold you know, some moved to other galleries and then got sold. It was a difficult process. But then after that, I kind of realized, you know what, if you want to make furniture, you got to make chairs. Actually, one of my best friend's mom told me that, you know, she was like, who's going to buy a table without chairs? And she's right. So it took three years really for me to make a chair. And there were a lot of stumbling along the way. But now I'm finally at a point where I'm making chairs and tables, I think, more right than anybody ever in history. So if anything goes down in history as like, you know, it didn't sell as many tables and chairs as it wanted, but like the ones that are still kicking around are kicking around and they're right. So to me, that's important. And so that summer you were still in school at the time, yeah? 
Yeah, I just graduated this past May 2016. So right. this whole time, aside from like these past eight months, I've been in school. Right. So made a sale or two, it sounds like, of that slab table. And yeah. then at what point did kind of the church synagogue Those stuff come in? Those kind of gigs come in. And explain how that kind of happened and then what happened. They started really from friends that would either be part of a congregation or a parish or whatever, being like, you know what, they're going through a renovation you know, let's have my friend Giancarlo sit up there and talk to the board of whatever and say, this is why you got to buy my furniture. And a lot of the times it didn't work, right? But then, you know, you get a couple that do work and then you get a couple recommendations from there and you build a small business in there. And the wonderful thing about it is it's always something new, right? And then there's very rarely a real set hard limit in terms of like, Somebody looking for something beautiful knows how much something beautiful costs, right? And I can guarantee them without a doubt that, you know what, if it comes out of my shop at the end of the day, it's going to be beautiful. And I know that because like there have been times where I've been like halfway through something and been like, you know what, this isn't right. And let me start over. And I've been, you know, I'm not even going to say lucky. I think the people that I work with understand that like, you know, this is a process and there are going to be mistakes and weird things that happen along the way. But for the most part, not even for the most part, all of them are extraordinarily happy with whatever they have. And have called me back now, which I've taken like an eight month ish, six month ish hiatus from doing all custom work while I've been really buckling down on this set. And I think like this past six months, I've gotten more calls for custom business than I have in the past year. It's interesting. And so with kind of this religious institution situation, how did you realize that there was something there and then kind of what was interesting about, because those were all custom jobs, right? Yeah, 100% custom jobs. So the thing is about it, everybody's looking for something built to their space, right? Nobody wants that prefab, whatever. I mean, there are companies out there you can buy for probably one-fifth of what those people pay me to do it, prefab or pre-designed pieces. Nobody wants that. The 90s are over, the 80s are over, nobody wants press board with a veneer on it. Nobody wants that. Everybody wants the solid wood. And even then, you have to have somebody that understands how to work with solid wood, right? It's much more difficult than working with plywood in many respects. So everything... Explain that difference really quick. So wood is always alive, right? Even when it's dead, cut down from the tree 100 years ago, the wood itself is alive, meaning that it absorbs and releases moisture, it expands and contracts, it twists and bows. And those are things that over the test of time will destroy furniture, right? So, you know, if I make a cabinet and it's perfectly straight and square and beautiful, and then six months later, and when it's winter time, and, you know, the moisture content goes from 70% to 30, and this whole thing looks like a pretzel, no one's going to be happy and no one's going to call me back for another job. So I have to make sure like throughout the whole process, everything is done right. No one can come just from working with plywood and start with solid wood, which I'm sure somebody that works with plywood 99% of the time would say to me, kid, you don't know what you're talking about because plywood has all these different intricacies that you have to deal with. And I'm sure that's true. And I just don't know it because I'm not in that world. But it's very rare to find somebody that works in both because even the machines are different, right? The tools are different. Everything's different. Explain kind of the transformation then from working on more of the religious institutions to kind of back into the business as as your own. This is also something I always wanted to do, right? I love custom work. It's super interesting to me. But by the time it's designed and it's just going through the tedium of making it, the pleasure drops off for me at a certain point, 
right? I want to do the first one and I want to make it weird and I want to make it perfect and I want to figure out something that no other woodworker can figure out. And then past that, it's ho-hum for me, right? That's something I've done a million times before and I'm over it. So doing this dining set has always been something I really wanted to do because I feel like it's in my place in the home, right? When I see my furniture, I know that it's places in the dining room. And I know that there's a certain level of craft and there's a certain level of engineering and there's a certain level of just overall quality that has been robbed from a particular part of the house and that is the dining room. And I know that I have the answer to that question. It was always my end goal. So it was just a matter of having like the finances in order to kind of like take this time off and pursue, you know, mess up the chair nine times over the course of, you know, months. So that's really, I guess, what happened. So this is obviously that set has been something you've been working on for what, almost a year now? The first sketches I have of the chair were now it's 2017, I think we're in 2013. Wow. That same chair. That same chair. Yeah, it's been reworked a million times. But. Yeah, and so talk a bit about kind of the design process and what does that look like and kind of the iterations and how did you know that you had it when you had it? That's a very multi-layered question. And it's going to get to something. Yeah, we have, like We have time. Go for it. All right, perfect. It's getting to something in the core of my being, which is I don't believe in art the way the public sees art, right? For me, if you're not pushing the limit of what a material can do, you're not making art, right? You really have to push the limit of, you know, wood, iron, whatever. You better be pushing the limit or else, yeah, it's just not art. So taking that into consideration, there is a certain form of chair that has never been made correctly because the science and manufacturing behind it has never been done right. You know, they say if you scratch a designer, you'll always find a minimalist, right? So at a certain point in my being, there is that. So I was like, what's the fewest number of individual parts necessary to make a chair? So what I did was I said, okay, I can make the front leg turn into the back, right? And I can make the back leg be the main support of the seat. And then the seat can be cantilevered off of that main leg. And these are all things I can do. And there'll be a back panel that accepts a leather cushion and I can make that happen. So I knew really the direction and the overall form that I wanted the chair to take because it's just obviously the right answer at a certain point, you know, and I know that sounds really cocky, but it is, it's the right answer. You know, if you want to make a chair in the fewest number of parts without like, you know, making the entire thing out of a super stretchy BS plywood, then this is the chair that comes out. Anybody can design this chair if you follow a certain set of principles. So then I kind of went to drawing the chair and making sure that it fit human proportion. Read a whole lot of literature about that. Tested a bunch. Figured out what I, not even what I liked. Designing for the quintessential buyer. You know, better feel like the best chair they ever sat in and how to make that happen. And then got my general shapes and curves down and worked the whole chair out on pencil and paper. Made the first one without even touching the computer. And then got the computer. And then all of a sudden, instead of one iteration taking a couple of months, it became twice that. People always say when you get the computer, the time drops in half. For me, it doubled. 
in the computer is CAD. What yeah. The, okay. So I use SolidWorks for all of my computer modeling, which is an engineering software. It's not a design software. And a couple of other programs along the way for running of different analyses. But they kind of just added on to the time. Was that a learning curve thing or is more just like perfection? I think I was a whiz kid when I graduated school because I'd been using it for four years. It was a perfection thing. Once you realize that, hey, you can redraw that line to infinity and look at it every different way and analyze it every different way and do your engineering calculations every different way, you spend three weeks at the computer where, as before, you on paper, you're like, okay, this is great. Because one iteration takes you, whatever, three weeks, whereas with the computer, you do more iterations. But the results were more promising? Or? I mean, you can see it, yeah. right? You can turn it around. You can see it. You can examine it. You can load it. You can put you know, X amount of pounds on the chair and see approximately how it's going to react. And then you can really hone your manufacturing process, right? So just to build this chair, I built three entire new machines by hand, right? Which I would have taken me a much longer if I had done it all on pencil and paper. You talked a bit before about kind of the dichotomy between furniture as utility versus as kind of form design and then art is what you mentioned. How did you kind of figure out that spectrum or where you wanted to fall on it? If it even is a spectrum or you don't actually have to compromise on those. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Let's take some historical examples so we can whittle our way down. Let's unpack this. Let's unpack this. If you look at chairs that are historically considered the great designs... The first name that comes to mind is Eames, right? Charles and Ray Eames, and what they did with molded plywood, which was, I mean, a stolen innovation from the military, which is fine. They found a beautiful application for it, and they manufactured it probably at the end of the day more efficiently than the military would with Herman Miller. Having said that, the reason why that chair is both art and part of like modern culture and a part of this historical sense of design is because it was the pinnacle. They were pushing molded plywood to the limit. They've already, for me, gotten into that category of art. And because the way they were manufacturing it was so cost effective, they were able to bring it to homes all throughout America. This is another weird thing. Would I love to see my furniture all the way throughout America? Sure. One, it's a different time. Two, I don't think I'm that guy. I don't think I can do that. I don't think it's in me. I don't think I want to. And I would rather make the perfect product at the real pinnacle between engineering and art and push the materials I know how to push to the limit. And that's where I think I belong. So I'm not really in anything worried about like, this is the cost to the consumer, you know? The people that will enjoy it will buy it. I'm not really, like, worried about that. It sounds like you see them existing in tandem then, that they're not actually opposed or they don't have to be different parts of the spectrum. No, 100% not. No. Because think about all the great designs. I mean, the iPhone, that's a beautiful thing driven by utility, and yet there are millions of them made, probably made every day, right? And it's cheap enough to the point where, like, most people in major countries have them. At what point did you know or kind of how did it kind of unfold that this went from a hobby into an actual real business? Going to engineering school, the biggest summer, the one that would kind of determine where you would work after college, 
was the summer going into your senior year. I've never looked for an internship in my life. And hopefully, fingers crossed, never will have to or like look for a job. And when I didn't take an internship or look for an internship or look for a job then was kind of my, okay, I'm wedded to this idea now. You know, this is no longer, oh, Giancarlo makes tables and messes around with this chair that still no one's ever seen. You know, that's when it really became a business, which is really where I buckled down. I'm like, okay, if I want to have a chair ready to launch at the 2017 International Contemporary Furniture Fair, I have to start now. So that was whatever, June of 2015, something like that, I think. Going back to the previous question, given that, you know, you were looking at kind of the intersection of like utility and art, did that mean that the only place to be was on the high end at the super differentiated end? Were there ever thoughts of doing something middle or lower market or it just only made sense that it was up at the high end? I think it only makes sense that it's at the high end because this is probably the best kept secret of the furniture industry, which I do not consider myself a part of and don't ever want to be considered a part of. Are you part of an industry or you're just doing your thing? When I like to think about myself, Giancarlo Studio Furniture is doing its thing in the corner with its blinders on to whatever is happening. And the people that want to know will come over here and they'll know. But I'm not interested because... Realistically, what it comes down to is whatever brand you're shopping at now is crap. That's just the truth, right? And it's just a matter of the levels of crap. But at the end of the day, there's not much difference between a dining set that to the consumer costs $3,000 and one that costs ten or twelve in terms of quality. It's the same way somebody would buy a Lexus over a Toyota for that extra $15,000 more that it is. The Camry is the same car as whatever the Lexus equivalent model is of, but the skin is prettier and like these non-essentials are prettier and you have seat warmer standard, which like you secretly pay for in the price anyway. So like, does it matter? You know, and like a lot of that very interesting trickery has been tried. I would, to put a date on it, since the early 70s in the furniture industry. Obviously, I didn't live through that, but like looking through historical accounts of the furniture industry and talking to people that have been in the industry that long, that's when this like marketing driven, fashion driven, seasonal and like replace your furniture every 15 years came from. And that's where timeless design died, honestly. And like true, honest grit designs died. It's very sad. Yeah. Super sad. (laughs) I mean, realistically, do I want to be doing this? I'm not sure. I have no idea. I have no gripes with saying that I have no idea if this is something that I want to be doing. But I will tell you, there is a need for somebody doing this, and I feel like I fit that need better than anyone I've ever met, so I will do it. And it's not about me. Call me what you want. For me, I honestly think I'm doing this, I'm putting up air quotes, for the people. You know what I mean? Like, this needs to exist. You know, we've lost something. And not to get preachy, but if we have any people, you know, in the crowd with kids, they're not going to want that dining room set that you have. It's not an heirloom. You know, you went and you bought it on some, one of these big box manufacturers that's going straight in the trash. And from a sustainability standpoint, I can't see that. From a what it means to the family standpoint in terms of an heirloom, I can't see that. And to me, that's something wonderful. 
what has been bringing people together longer than any other object in history? And it's the table and chair, right? So let's keep it that way. Let's get a little bit back to our roots. Let's understand the importance of these items. And let's put our money where our mouths are in terms of, I want to leave something behind that my kids, my nephew, my, you know, my niece will enjoy. Do you see ways where that sentiment, which is, if anything, a return to the past can trickle down to, I don't even want to say more mass market, but slightly less expensive stuff? Like, do you see price and the nature of an heirloom as a trade-off? Or is it more about the thinking, design, the manufacturing, the marketing has gone into everything that is not, you know, at the very high end that has... I guess, negated any potential for non-super high-end objects to retain heirloom status? I think at the end of the day, the middle of the market is the best judge of what's crap. So you see this in every industry. You see it in cars. I'm sure you see it in fashion at some level. You see it in furniture for sure. There are some things that the public will understand the social value of eventually, right? There's some people that understood the value of the Eames chair when it came out. And there's some people that didn't understand until 2006 when the prices for these things skyrocketed. There's always going to be that lag, but what is good will always be classic. Just to clarify then, it isn't entirely predicated on price then, that you can have heirloom status if it is constructed well and sold at any X price. But it sounds like the sentiment is that that has barely happened in the last 20 to 30 years at anything not at the super high end. Is it possible to have that happen at a mass to middle market level to design stuff of that quality that will last? Or by nature of the price point or the construction, is stuff in the middle or kind of lower end of the market bound to become crap sooner rather than later? I would consider myself and my contemporaries at this level of furniture, not even the Ferraris or Lamborghinis of the furniture industry, but like the Paganis and the... Bugatti. And- yeah, like the weirdest manufacturer that makes, you know, one every, you know, year. What is something weird? But they're classic cars all up and down the spectrum. Now, there's no doubt that a car at that level is made impeccably well and probably made better than any other car anywhere else in the market. And that will always have a special value for being that. Contrary to that, there are cars like the Toyota, I think it's, or no, the Nissan AE82, which is like the secret name for like the 1982 Maxima or something like that, which has a cult following and a cult status because it is a wonderful car. And they're trying to keep them alive and... You know, it is a wonderful car. It had a great design aesthetic, but at the same time, it's condemned to rust for what it was when it began. So the consumer products, just by nature of being built down to a price point, are not going to last as long as something that's made correctly, correctly. And I think everybody listening and really anybody understands that, right? There's a difference between being built down to a price point and being made correctly, no holds barred. So kind of getting back to the furniture a bit, we talked about the design process, talk a bit about kind of the manufacturing process. You talked a bit about the machines, about what you had to design, but how did that all come to fruition and kind of to what degree do you have to push that process to make what you wanted to make? If you take the analogy of like making a Lego set, right? Most woodworkers start with 
Lego bricks, right? They start with lumber all down to one dimension, and then they'll put it together with different various joints and different configurations to make whatever they want, right? Everything's more or less made up of straight lines. There's not a single straight line in anything that I have made. And that's not because, like, I love curves. It has nothing to do with that, you know? Because I don't. They're so much harder. But I think the answer is in the curve, right? The curve is what gives the furniture the strength. So I can't start with the Lego pieces that normal manufacturers or designers start with. But doing that freed me up, right? Because now I can start with anything. It doesn't matter. To be honest with you, I start from the log. Like I go to the lumber yard. I look at the log. It's already cut down. I explain to them how I want it sliced up. It's all made for me, dried. It's a two-year process. So if you have to think about that, to make my first set and have enough to develop with, I had to put the order in two years beforehand. Wow. Why is that? That's because when you cut the tree down, there's a certain number. I'm going to throw it out there. It's, I think it's around 50 to 60% moisture content inside the wood. You have to get it down to about eight and then you know dry it and let it sit at eight for about a good six to eight months mm. until it's really fully equalized until you can put it in your shop, have it re-equalized there for about a month or two, and then you can start. If you're at that level, right, there's some people making furniture that literally go to the log, cut it into whatever shape or size they need, and then six months later is the final product's done. But then six months after that, the customer calls them back and says it's a pretzel on the floor. And the reason is because you didn't wait, right? There's a certain amount of time that just needs to elapse in this business in order for the materials to be right. It's the same thing with leather. It's the same thing with cloth. I mean, these things got to sit before you use them. So being able to kind of take control of the process from the beginning to the end took away all of these restrictions I might have had on myself if I said, okay, these are the Lego bricks I have to play with. You know, like I'm working with the material itself. So I had to devise new ways to make the parts I needed. I have had blades developed with me just to cut the wood correctly. Like it's a whole thing. And even in terms of machinery, I've gone through, you know, sets of things, things that just break things that just were no good to start with. I just throw them out and find the better version of it and then take that one apart and make it better. Go further. Talk a bit about kind of some of the machines you've had to build or the blade. It sounds like the level of vertical integration you've gone through is extreme to say the least. Yeah, I guess so. So the blades I found from a website and the guy was like, give me a call if you need anything special. So I gave them. They're just asking for it. (laughs) They were really asking for it. I don't remember what state he's in, but he's somewhere out in the Midwest. And I called him and he was a great guy. I could tell he was just a nice guy on the phone. And we spent a long time. We sent blades back and forth for, I don't know, maybe a month, six weeks. It's so romantic. Yeah. (laughs) Super strange when you think about it. But then eventually we hit on the right geometry and the right thickness and the right the characteristics of the blade were just perfect to the point where I could do something that had never been done before, which was make these weird thin layers of wood with very little waste. I wasn't case hardening the wood, which is a fancy way of saying like essentially ruining the material to the point where no blade will really cut it anymore. So you don't want to put too much heat into whatever you're working on. And then at other points down the line, it's just a matter of having your tools tuned and sharp enough and powerful enough 
and just set up perfectly right and being very easy and like understanding what the limitations of each tool are and pushing them to the limit to get them to do what you want. So an example of that is like I've built, you know, conveyor systems for various machines in my shop so that they'll essentially, after a lot of tweaking, give me a guaranteed perfect piece that can go into a lamination that'll be pressed for 24 hours that makes up one side of one chair, which in terms of time is probably 20% of the chair is done in just over a day and a half, right? So it takes about five days to make a chair-ish, six days. I think you mentioned before there's a machine that allowed you to do all the bending of the wood. Talk a bit about that because given everything's curved, right? Yeah. So the machine that allows me to do the bending is actually a giant press that I made myself. I bought the steel from a scrapyard. It came down from old buildings. I don't even know where. And I came home with all this steel and I cut it all into sections and welded it up into a giant frame. And I have a bunch of hydraulic pumps running to it so I can essentially monitor down to the tenth of a ton how much force is being put on these pieces and I can bend them effortlessly. Just being able to make my own machines. I mean, if you're a woodworker, where are you going to start with that? Right? Bend this. What? You know, like... All right, we're done. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know how a normal woodworker would do it, honestly. Especially because each one of the layers of wood that goes into my chair, they're each individually tapered, right? So each chair is made up of 12 layers. And the shape goes from at the top of the chair where the top of the back is. It goes from thin to where the juncture between the front and back leg of the chair are, to the thickest points of the chair, and then towards the feet, thin again. And that's done at the individual layer level. So it's very hard to get the tolerances right when you stack 12 of something up to be on the money, right? Because any error you make is being multiplied by 12. If you're off by three thousandths of an inch, well, like, guess what, kid? You're off at 36 thousandths, which is, that's a feelable amount. Have you patented any of this stuff? So I have patents out for both the manufacturing process and both the design of the chair now. And they're all in various stages of going through that process, which is it's a thing on its own. By the time it gets sent back to you twice and you realize that, depending on who didn't know what they were talking about, I would say 50% of the time it's me <laughs> and 50% of the time it's the people reading it. So... I mean, realistically, I'm hoping to have all of that set and done by New Year's for sure. That's not that long even. No, 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 no. I'm hoping that's when the first one comes through and is done, done. And when the last one will not come back to me any longer. Talk a bit about color and kind of what you focused on and kind of where it is today. And what are even like the options and the process for color with wood? So I don't color anything. That's the way it is from the tree, right? And a good test is, you know, if anybody is out there and is a furniture maker, a little tidbit of information that I didn't know when I started was a lot of the times wood is dyed, right? Not even stained. We all think of going to the Home Depot and buying wood stain. But in industry, it's dyed with these where they're called aniline dyes. And they're just these fancy pigments mixed with either water, alcohol, or oil that you spread all over the wood and they color the wood to a certain extent. So I never thought it was believable 
to take a white wood and turn it brown. I, that's something that never sat right with me. So I only work with walnut, which is extraordinarily expensive, extraordinarily rare, and extremely expensive when you mess up. But if you want to make a beautiful product, you got to start from the beginning with beautiful materials. So that being said, even with walnut, right, you get three trees that are even what they call sister trees. They're all in the same five or 10 meter square areas where they were harvested from. And they might all be different shades of purple, brown, red, you know, and there's some people that go through and homogenize that all with a dye, right? They'll take the brown they like the best and wash over all of the boards that are already brown just to make them all the same amount of brown. And I totally think it's a viable way to do it. I don't poo-poo those people. There's certain projects where you can't avoid that, right? If you're doing a giant, you know, example, Ark for the Torah in a synagogue and your client wants, not that they don't appreciate the different colors of wood, but they would rather have all the colors be homogenous because at the end of the day, the whole thing has to look like a cohesive piece. And you're not really lying by just altering the color that little bit to get it all a little bit better in the same family, at least. That's something that I told myself I would not do with any of the collections that come out because I work with the material in a big enough quantity where I can section out and say, okay, this color is the color that will be the visible color through this. And then I throw accent pieces in because I think they add. They don't detract. They add, right? So if I have a stack of walnut that's a little more purple or a little more red and, you know, the face of everything is brown, I'll put these red or purple pieces into the individual laminations and that's all for like that little moment when you're carrying the tray of coffee and dessert to the dining room table for all your guests to enjoy for while you're walking by the line of chairs for that one layer to hit you right in the eye to say, wow, right? Something's going on there. It's not dead, right? And you don't want just brown, dead looking furniture. You want something that shows off whatever character the natural organism had. So I try to incorporate that in everything. So I don't mess with color much. Gosh, so are you not staining wood or anything? I've never wow. stained yet. So I've that dark wood, is that's literally the color out of the tree. And that's why the materials are so expensive, mm. right? When you go to, again, not dropping names of major furniture brands, when you go to them and they say something's walnut, most of the time what you're looking at is actually a color swatch. I would say 80%, and this is, you know, nobody look this up on the internet and check me on this, but uh, I would say... It feels like 80%. feels like 80% of the furniture made and sold as walnut is really poplar, which is a very cheap, very fast-growing, very dense, and once you color it brown, looks actually pretty similar to walnut, to be honest. So, <laughs> you know, the people that are faking are doing a pretty good job. Where's all your wood from, kind of at the source? Is this domestic? Is it international? What's the sourcing like? Yes, yeah, so it's all domestic. At the end of the day, most of the walnut to be purchased in North America comes from Georgia. Hmm. Georgia, Alabama, those places. That's just really where they haven't really been harvested yet where they're, you know, huge quantities and where they actually grow them and cut them down sustainably, right? You could go to your neighbor's house in Eastern Pennsylvania and get the most beautiful walnut tree and I'd be lucky to have it, right? 
But things like that are coming fewer and more far between. So it's just finding a supply, unless you want to go down to Georgia, right, which is sometimes inevitable. If you can find a supplier that is can act as a middleman and knows what you're looking for, and you can put that on them to go sift through the hundreds of logs and bring back five so you can buy three, to me, that's always been a better option. If you can make it happen that way, you're better off. So talk a bit about kind of the sustainability piece and how do you approach it? So my biggest thing is when people say to me, well, you're cutting down all of the walnut trees. And the answer is yes and no, right? Yes, I am cutting down walnut trees. These walnut trees were not going to come down otherwise. But my thing back at them is, okay, well, you changed your kitchen table three times throughout your entire lifetime and you only bought a house when you were 30, right? So if you figure you change your kitchen table every 15-ish years, who's really doing more damage to the environment? Or you get a dining room table and it's been stained and lacquered and it's just like one huge 21st century... Plastically surgeoned table. Exactly. Just like some abomination of just chemicals and solvents and gross stuff, who's really doing the harm on the environment? Somebody who's manufacturing tables and chairs that way, sprayed with lacquer, where like all of these solvents are being released into the environment, or somebody that's finding the raw materials ethically as they can and producing a product that is guaranteed. No one's going to throw out my... I can guarantee you that. No one's going to be like, oh, you know what? Hun, this is not worth taking from the house. Leave it here. The new owners will figure out what to do with it. They'll either throw it out or keep it. Leave it up to them. No one's ever going to do that, right? This is something that's going to stick around. So I might provide, who knows, on the high end, maybe like tables for four or five generations of one family, aspirationally, you know what I'm saying? The stuff is surely designed to outlive that, you know, but nobody really knows what's going to happen five generations from now to the earth. But I just think that just the sheer fact that they're kicking around for so long kind of outweighs the fact that, you know, most people on average buy three sets over the course of a lifetime. What does the Scarsdale Sanitation Department think of you? Wow. Okay. So I show up Mondays, Tuesdays. I show up, you know what? Let's just say I show up every day. Now, my standard work outfit are six blue sweaters from Russell Athletic. I bought them for $4.95 a piece on Amazon three years ago. And my mom just keeps washing them. And it's fantastic. And like six pairs of pants, which all look the same. They all have rips in the same spot because I do the same thing every day. And they all have the same amount of paint and finish and randomness on them. So when I show up to the Scarsdale Sanitation Department, they think I'm a contractor because I have a pickup truck full of like wood shavings and dust and weird stuff. And they're just like, can we see your driver's license, please? There was one time I had to bring my driver's license and my passport. They like did not believe I belonged to the community, which is like a normal citizen throwing out their normal stuff, you know? So yeah, they definitely think I'm a weirdo. They stop me probably, I would say once every fifth time I go. Where's kind of the business as it sits today? And then what's the plan for the next kind of one, two, three years as you look kind of to the future? So my plan for the business today is to go, obviously, to the International Contemporary Furniture Fair or the ICFF in May in the Javits Center, May 21st to the 24th. I will be booth 882, shameless plug. And obviously, I only make 12 sets of these things a year and to go and sell this dining set. So get orders for them. 
I'm not really looking to sign with a gallery or with any particular decorator and designer. I know that's not the route I want to go. So it's really a matter of getting those a couple more initial orders and going and finding a space really to do this full time, like my first move out and go do it space. And after that, I also have some people that are waiting around on custom orders that I said, okay, you know what? If you really want this to come from me, wait. And I would say, I'm pretty sure all of them like are still going to just call me in June or something. Yeah. And so you mentioned a bit before about wanting to kind of push stuff forward, push the envelope with technology and all that. As you look forward, do you see that happening continually with chairs and tables? Or are there other parts of the home or furniture that you are interested in expanding to? What does the range look like as this grows? Gotcha. So right now it's just a dining table, a dining chair, and a chandelier that no one's seen yet, which is like my classic way of doing things. Once the chandelier is done, the chandelier will be the last piece to be included in this first unveiling of stuff. After that, I have fully designed and mock-ups of lounge chairs, wine cabinets, china closets, all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to make a china closet and then go and find a buyer for it because... From experience, I know that if somebody's wall is 10 feet long, they want a china closet exactly 10 feet long. And I can make each person a custom one, still continuing my design ethos, because you're just changing out the big dimensions of things, right? The minor components are all still the same. And then in terms of that, where, and I get this question from people all the time, like, once you're done pushing the limit of wood, are you just going to push the limit of wood more? And it's a funny question, right? Or Uh, just like, are you just going to cash in? Exactly. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Realistically, I will always be playing with the next thing, right? So I have in my mind different things that I want to play with. And being an engineer, there are these weird materials that are available to me that like a normal woodworker normally wouldn't have. I think this is probably more three years down the line. If this all works in a capacity that gives me enough financial leeway to run and develop something else, I would definitely look at new emerging materials and even though it's not much of an emerging material, I think that all of the work in carbon fiber, similarly to wood in the past, most of the carbon fiber applied to furniture is wrong. I think it's applied in like a very gaudy, nonsensical way for the sheer sexiness of this is carbon fiber. You know, like who cares? It's a material, right? It's cheap. It's cheap. Compared to wood, carbon fiber in terms of manufacturing costs is probably less than 20%, right? And I'm not in it not to spread that love to the consumer either, right? So if there's a line that I can honestly design and produce the best of and use it in a rational way that's beautiful and really pushes the limit of what carbon fiber can do so you could just imagine what it's going to look like, I'll do it. If it becomes a sustainable thing to do in New York, it'll happen in New York. That's the approach that I push everything with, right? I want to be there. I want to be part of the manufacturing process. But There's no carbon fiber manufacturing happening in New York right now. So I think just getting like the certificates from the government to be able to do that is difficult. Obviously, manufacturing domestically is a very hot topic right now. I think having talked before, it sounds like being in New York State has been very helpful to you in terms of getting equipment and getting that done. Talk a bit about kind of that piece and then are you optimistic that certain forms of manufacturing can come back or do you think what has been lost will never be regained? I know, not hope, that manufacturing will eventually come back to the United States. And the reason for that is very simple. You cannot run an economy 
ethically without having all 100% of the products produced inside the boundary walls under the same rules and regulations that exist inside that country, right? If you use China or India or Vietnam as a furniture workshop, you're paying, well, obviously this is something known to everybody. You're paying these extraordinarily low rates for both the materials and for the labor, right? And their lives of the people that are there don't reflect the profit made by marketing here. And you see it falling apart now, right? I just finished reading an article that said that the biggest luxury market is China, which is 100% true. And you can think, how did they get rich? They got rich the same way any country has ever gotten rich. And that's through doing the grunt work manufacturing labor. The United States was the first country to go through the Industrial Revolution in a meaningful capacity, right? You have to kind of exclude Great Britain there. But um, in a capacity that eventually influenced the global scale, the United States was the first. And in order to have an ethical economy that, I mean, honestly works, the, the economy today doesn't work, you have to have the things produced that you consume on your own shores. So it's inevitable that it comes back. It might not be in the United States. We might be sitting here in the land of Oshkosh or like whatever it's named next. But that's why wars are fought and all this kind of stuff is to keep, you know, the money where it is. Yeah, I think one of the more interesting things for me is that we basically lost all the low to medium end manufacturing, but it seems to be given that there is skilled labor here, an opportunity to bring back the higher end manufacturing, which again, fits very perfectly with very high caliber furniture, what you're making. But that to me seems like one of the biggest opportunities is if you're going to do it, differentiate on the quality of the people here, as opposed to knowing that the Ikea's of the world and just the stuff that lasts you maybe 60 days, there's no point bringing that back because we can't win. But how do you play on terms that you can actually win on? Some of these jobs are just gone, right? I have a friend that's an engineer for a big tool manufacturer, and he says all the time, like, oh, the screw putting in machine today broke down. And I'm like, the screw putting in machine? He's like, yeah, this machine took 20 people off the assembly line and wherever they're from. Those jobs are never going to come back. There's never going to be need somebody screwing the tops on toothpaste bottles or putting the screws into the iPhone. That's never going to happen. The thing that is going to happen is these people are super qualified and intelligent enough to occupy jobs at a rung higher, right? So let's push the limit of what our manufacturing capabilities are rather than kind of sink into this slump of like, this is what we know how to do. Let's figure out mechanized ways to do it. And then, and then just leave education at a stasis. 100%. No, you need to move the caliber of education. The education today, if you think about it, how is it set up, right? So I had the experience of going to school in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania is or was the biggest steel town in the United States for, I don't know, tens of years. So... That's the reason why the school districts there all funneled into tech schools or whatever that essentially got you these high paying jobs on the assembly line or in the manufacturing plant for various steel parts. And that's the reason why schools are even broken down into districts. You have historically farming districts, you have historically manufacturing districts, you have all kinds of districts. So really, even the way the system's set up is like an antique of a time that no longer is. So... It needs a whole kind of revolution. And they're totally people. I don't know. I don't stay current on that subject, but they're totally people working on that. Like I've heard TED Talks and all weird kinds of stuff. You know, people are approaching that problem. And then just last question, what's been the most kind of exciting or rewarding part of the journey so far? There 
is something about standing back from something you created, whether or not somebody else thinks it's great, and saying, wow, this is exactly what I wanted it to look like, this is exactly what I wanted it to feel like, and this is perfect. For me, that's a magical moment. I'm not a religious person, but for me, that's as close as I get to a religious moment. There's a very famous author that I enjoy a lot, and one of the things he says is the only thing that differentiates humans from apes is our ability to make tools. Everything that we ever have, any credit that we have for building the society we have, is because that first guy took a stick and attached it to a rock and made a hammer, something that apes are not able to do. So I very much live life by that credo. Awesome, man. Thanks for talking. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. This episode was edited by George Drake Jr. And my thanks to him for his time on it. It was fantastic talking with Giancarlo about his journey to the top of his field, driven by curiosity and a lack of interest in conventional wisdom. His work is exquisite, and I highly recommend checking it out, especially if you can in person. He'll be at the International Contemporary Furniture Fair, May 21st to 24th, at the Javits Center in New York City. Craftsmen who are pushing the limits are always inspiring to talk to, and I'm looking forward to watching Giancarlo tackle new products and materials as his business grows. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Matt Scanlon of Nottam Cashmere, Josh Udashkin of Raiden, and Kevin Lavelle of Mizzen Domain. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.